Welcome to the Best Coast Political Podcast with Jeremy Caradona and Matt Dell, coming to you from the traditional territories of the Lekwungen speaking peoples, today known as the uh, Esquimalt and Songhees First Nations. And uh, it's a beautiful Friday evening. How are you doing, Matt? Hey, Jeremy. I'm great. So today we're talking about probably the hottest topic in Canada and definitely in BC, with the notable exception of the gruesome discovery at the former residential school in Kamloops of the of the children's bodies in a grave. I mean, that's obviously big news and hopefully we'll have a chance to talk about it. But the other big story right now is uh, forestry, old growth logging and the blockades in Kaikous and in Ferry Creek. We probably have the most significant uh, forestry activism that we've seen in BC since the mid nineties in Clackwood Sound. And so we're gonna bring on two guests today. We've got Professor Gary Bull from the University of British Columbia, who is a professor of forestry and focuses on the economics of the forestry sector. And we have Torrance Cost, who is the, uh, the head honcho at the Wilderness Committee, which is an activist organization that uh, opposes old growth logging and also produces research on, on uh, biodiversity and on the economics of forestry. Yeah, I'm hoping this will be two different perspectives on a very, very complicated and deep and emotional issue that, you know, I frankly don't know a lot about other than what I see in the media. Um, there's there's, a, there's a, a, a class element to it. There's a worker element to it. There's an economic element. And of course, the big one is the indigenous element, which is yeah. probably the biggest part for me is trying to understand um, how we are dealing with reconciliation and, and drip uh, the declaration on the rights of indigenous people while um, you know giving them autonomy over their own land and resources so i'm curious to hear what what both guests have to say about that absolutely very complicated topic and uh and we're going to try to get into the weeds and, and have a robust complex conversation i mean i think the media has done a good job of just covering the blow by blow of what's happening in the forest but that's not really what we want to do on this podcast we want to i mean the framing that we have today is if and when old growth logging comes to an end what does a, po a post old growth logging industry, forestry industry look like in BC? Can we actually have a truly sustainable forestry sector? What are the, all the implications, economic implications, indigenous land right implications, ecotourism, biodiversity, et cetera? Obviously a huge topic, but we wanna try to bring some depth uh, to this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. There's been little, so little depth. And I mean, I'm probably the perfect example of that who, had that viral tweet of a photo and the photo yeah, we should was talk a, about that. We should yeah, talk about that. It was a very powerful photo, I think, no doubt about it, but it, it left a lot of questions to be answered. And immediately um, there was that people going asking that, where did this come from? What's the story here? How much money is this going to make? And all those type of questions. And of course, I didn't have an answer to absolutely any of those. And I, I knew that at the time. It was just a powerful photo. And uh, I, although I did feel a bit guilty because you don't want to be um, spreading, uh, you know, misinformation or misinformation whatever. you don't want to be spreading lies and of course that wasn't my intent but that is what happens when you when you're you use very basic social media images to try to share a message so and for those who don't know uh, matt has had two tweets go viral in the last couple of weeks one was about uh anti-maskers and his experience with that and then a couple i guess it was a week and a half ago matt tweeted out a, a photo that was taken by a woman named lorna up in nanaimo who was happened to be driving behind just a massive old growth log that was on a truck is the only log on the truck is at least two and a half meters in diameter she just tweeted this out matt picked it up just retweeted it because it was like just i don't know whatever interesting thing and it was picked it like went global and viral it was retweeted by uh, bill mckibben most well-known environmentalist in the u.s alexandra ocasio cortez of course a famous politician in the u.s rafi uh, numerous politicians and celebrities. And for some reason, this 
this photo really struck a chord with people. And I think uh, we'll have a chance to ask our guests about it, but I think it's probably because it happened right in the midst of the blockades and the RCMP enforcing an injunction. And it just seemed like the, um, the industry was sort of sneaking one past the goalkeeper. It's like, oh, you know, yeah, it, it just, it just it's felt just something some, shady about it. it was, some photos are just powerful. And, and yeah. that was a powerful photo. Uh, although there's a very complicated backstory that I'm not going to pretend to speak to. Uh, right. And that photo doesn't answer those questions. And that's why we're going to have these guests on. So um, I think we're going to do them separately today, just so we can really get into uh, the weeds with both of the guests and, and not have them talking over one another. Yeah. Um, so and we'll splice it together. Yep. Yeah, sounds good. Okay. So let's uh, get our first guest on. Okay. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, uh, thanks for joining us. And Torrance, maybe we can start with you. Um, maybe give us your impression of what's gone down over the last month at Kaikus and at Ferry Creek. Where are you at in this process right now? So what's happened in the last month is, is uh, essentially uh, the RCMP began enforcement on the injunction that uh, the logging company Teal Jones uh, obtained on April 1st. Uh, the fact that it took them uh, almost a month and a half to begin enforcement, really more than a month and a half actually, uh, speaks to you know the remote nature of, of these blockades. And I think that's a key piece for, for listeners is, is old growth logging doesn't happen like you know just off the side of the highway or, or in like super easy to access places. It's, it's way down at the ends of the roads, right? The Kaikus is a good example. It flows into uh, Nitnat Lake uh, just outside the Nitnat village, that river. And the logging uh, that's being blockaded uh, is, is in like the top corner of it. If you, if you lay your hand uh, on the table in front of you, or you lay your arm on the table in front of you and your shoulder is the mouth of the river, the mm -hmm. logging that's being, that's being protested in that watershed is, is like on the tip of your pinky. Right. It is it is just a tiny corner. And and frankly, that's the status of, of most of most watersheds. Now, the bulk of the original forest has been has been taken. And it's kind of these last couple pockets that the companies are after. So enforcement began. It began at Kaikus, um, which is in the same uh, tenure. It's called TFL or Tree Farm License 46 as Asbury Creek, but it's in an entirely different uh, area, different watershed, uh, different First Nations territory. It's in the unceded territory of the Dididat Nation. And uh, enforcement began there. And uh, for the first week, essentially, that's where enforcement was. Um, probably, you know, almost half the arrests to date have been uh, in that watershed, which I, I think is a key distinction given uh, this, this flashpoint kind of has Ferry Creek blockade as, as the moniker. Um, uh -huh. Since then, enforcement has began at uh, other camps. There are there there are about half a dozen camps, uh, and there have been at any given time for the last uh, at least six months. Um, and and enforcement's began uh, just about all of them, and uh, arrests. I think I think just cracked 150 yesterday. Um, and and that's kind of uh, that's that's the state of what's happening. Um, all and sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I want to get, I mean, obviously old growth logging has been going on unabated for, you know, over a century now. I just want to get a sense, your perspective, why is this flashpoint happening now in 2020, 2021, 
We haven't seen major action like this in BC's forests since the war in the woods in the mid nineties. Why now? Um, I think there's a real sense of desperation on the part of, on the part of the public, right? That the numbers are, are pretty bleak. There's, there's, uh, almost 60 million hectares of, of um, forests in BC, which is uh, a little under two thirds of the, of the land uh, of this huge province. Um, but when it, comes to, when it comes to old growth, so there's a few different ways to break down the numbers. Um, if you count old growth as forest that's never been logged, uh, there's just there's about 13 million hectares out of uh -huh. 60, so a little over one fifth. But the vast majority of that is not what anyone associates with the term old growth, uh -huh. right? It's uh, it's um, you know higher elevation, it's lower productivity forest, smaller trees, less biodiversity, uh, and some of it is protected in uh, like alpine parks, like Strathcona Park. Uh, but the vast majority of it is is outside of, of what's called the timber harvesting land base. So the area of forest that's gonna be logged, not out of any government leadership or foresight, just out of the fact that it's not worth it. It's not valuable. To yeah. Cut. Yeah. yeah, it will never be cut, right? So for government to say, oh, you know, the most of the remaining old growth is won't be logged. <laughs> it's because we've cut all most of what's suitable for logging. This fight is over like a couple million hectares of forest mm -hmm. and people know it, right? They can see the maps. Uh, they can see the photos and videos that, that groups like the Wilderness Committee, Sierra Club, Ancient Forest Alliance are bringing out of the bush. Uh, and, and, you know, when they call us and, and, and say, hey, I want to get out and see like a big, a big extent of old growth forest, not, you know, a couple big trees in Goldstream or Francis King or something like that. Uh -huh. They want to get into a proper intact old growth forest. And the closest one is, is hours and hours away and you need a, a backroads vehicle to get there. And, and people understand that scarcity. I think after the war in the woods, uh, government and, and industry, so capital and, and the state did an excellent job of, of greenwashing on this, right? They, uh -huh. they recognized the appetite and and kind of tapped into the inherent uh, inherent want that we have to believe that we're doing better, right? Call it call it Canadian exceptionalism or whatever you want. Oh, at least we're not America, uh -huh. right? Um, and uh, and and people want to believe that we're managing well. So when uh -huh. when government and and corporations put out you know this beautiful spin about how much leadership they're they're showing, um, how much forest is already set aside, uh, it, it kind of sunk in for for you know the early part of of the 2000s and i think the reality is starting to hit home and then it can't be understated that the biggest difference between now and say five years ago or even two years ago is that the bc government has they made an election promise to save old growth mm -hmm. right like that's never happened before right. and and you know as cynical as people are about politics there's still an expectation that a promise like that will be kept Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the, the, the government, it's, it's not like they just got elected, you know, a month ago, they've been in power coming up on four years, they commissioned the most extensive review of forest policy that's ever been done in BC in the old growth strategic review. The findings of that panel were pretty unequivocal, the status quo isn't sustainable, we need a paradigm shift. Uh, and the recommendations were clear, defer the most at-risk forests, which, which is standing or, or some of it, you know, is, is, is not as much of it standing now in places like Kaikus, in Eden Grove, in Ferry Creek, right? So the government getting this clear roadmap, committing to do it, 
and then and then not acting on it is is a major part it's a driving force of this conflict and the images of people getting getting taken into paddy wagons uh, down on the back roads so gary then just maybe to reframe it like why in your view why is the you know we haven't seen the kind of forest activism that we're seeing right now in 20 or 30 years probably going back to right back to click or something like why now What's changed? What's new? What's different? I mean, the discussion about how to basically reduce logging, if not eliminate old growth logging on the coast has been going on for a long time. I mean, the Great Bear Rainforest, I think, probably took the winds of the sails in terms of a solution was found, you know, with First Nations, with the logging companies, with the NGOs. And so then... Maybe the the issue starts to dissipate after the Great Fair Rainforest Agreement for a long time. Uh, and now it's raised its head again, I think, because, uh, well, I think Vancouver Island is special. And it's, it's a very different situation than, than the Great Bear Rainforest or uh, Ida Y, for example. Uh-huh. Um, mainly, it's a much more heavily populated area. There's a lot more recreational tourist pressure uh, on the island, and so a lot more visibility. And and frankly, there's a lot less um, old growth left. Now, I, I don't want to get into the complexities of defining that. I don't think that would be helpful for the conversation. Um, but if, if we just keep it to big old trees, I mean, there's mm-hmm. just there's fewer and fewer of those left. And so people are very attached to them for, you know, and, and you can see that films uh, like Suzanne Samar or not film, but book, uh, the book and the upcoming film I hear. This happens all over the world. There are, um, you know, uh, sacred groves um, and special trees. And this, uh, as frankly, that conversation is going on for uh, more than 2000 years. I mean, the Greeks, um, you know, I, I, I was <laughs> tempted to do a PhD once on the ecology of ancient civilizations. So, yeah. you know, this idea of the sacred grove and sacred trees is, um, I, I think maybe in this very confusing time, maybe people are looking for attachment and connections to things that make more sense than in the crazy world that we live in. Uh, that, that's one uh, you know, that's one dimension of this conversation, I guess. Um, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I think that's spot on. Absolutely. How did these two areas escape being logged for so long? And what is actually at risk of being logged here? Like I've seen different pictures. How many acres or hectares are they trying to log now? And what is the value of that? Perhaps the license that government would have got and then the value of logs. Like how much money are we talking in acreages here? Right. Um, so, so... Uh, in the case of the Kaikus, for example, um, I mean, it, it's it's just essentially the least accessible part of the watershed. So, so in general, the biggest trees and the best forests are gonna uh, grow along the the river valley uh, and and closer to the ocean, closer to the mouth, right? Uh, I believe some of the the largest trees uh, ever measured in BC were 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 cut, you know, hundreds of years ago at like Robson and Granville, 
right? So like where, where cities and towns are sitting now, uh, th- this really flat accessible area that, that, that w- would have had a lot of the prime old growth. Um, so in Kaikus, essentially, you know, logging started at the mouth near Nitnat Lake and has worked its way up the valley. And, you know, I was in, in that watershed a couple days ago. And, and again, you know, most of it is second growth forest mm-hmm. logged, logged, you know, between 60 or 70 years ago and, and, uh, and recently, right. They're into the second cut in parts of, of this same watershed. Um, this last little pocket at the back, uh, it's just it's still standing because they haven't got to it yet. <laughs> um, Fairy Creek's a little different. You know, it does jump off the map because, uh, you know, when you look at like the satellite imagery, because it's relatively close to uh, the town of Port Renfrew and the Patchydak community, um, a big portion of the watershed is in uh, Ogma or Old Growth Management Area, which is a form of protection. Uh, that's really positive. Um, the entire watershed uh, boundary is about 1,200 hectares. Um, and there's contiguous old growth throughout that entire watershed and then and then kind of around the edges of it. Uh, and and Teal Jones is has roads and approved cut blocks and planned cut blocks uh, in a lot of that uh, contiguous forest on the outside of the watershed. And then as well as in uh, 200 hectares of, of the 1200 hectares of the watershed. So, so that's relatively small area that we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, a lot of a lot of industry uh, lobbyists and and uh, and even the, the provincial government, they're saying, oh, you know, like th- this watershed's the whole watershed's not going to get clear cut. And it's like, well, no one's saying no one said that. Right. The, the point is that in terms of watersheds of this size, right, most of the watersheds that have never been logged are, are tiny. Right. They drain uh, relatively small areas. Uh, most of them flow out uh, on the West Coast Trail. Um, little watersheds, a lot of them are, are again, in that inaccessible, more uh, shoreline bog type forest. Uh, again, low value to industry. Um, so of a, for an entire uh, watershed, and, and again, it's, it's, it's a sub-drainage, right? The Ferry Creek doesn't flow into the ocean. It flows into Ferry Lake, uh, mm-hmm. which drains into the San Juan River. And the San Juan River is another great example, right? The majority of this watershed, which drains, uh, which drains kind of uh, south into, um, into the, the bay of Port Renfrew, uh, drive across the bridge right at the town of Port Renfrew, mm-hmm. um, most of this watershed has been logged. Right? right. Most of the sub drainages and Ferry Creek is, uh, is, is a relatively small sub drainage that, that hasn't yet been logged. So the, the, the controversy isn't the whole thing will be logged. It's that, uh, it's that, you know, given its status and given the state of old growth across the island and the province, that none of it should be. So, Gary, then just going to follow up and, and ask you what is, I mean, from an ecological standpoint, I know this is a gigantic question that one could write books about, but what is the value of big old trees beyond their economic, we can get into the economic value in a minute, but what is their value beyond their economic value? I know that you work on climate and ecosystem services and such, but maybe just give our listeners a sense of what the value is of these trees. Yeah, so so there, there are many values, right? Now, <laughs> so so then we, we get into... Um, uh, what these unique old trees offer, and and it probably is uh, the greatest values, probably some sort of spiritual cultural connection mm-hmm. with let's say with indigenous communities. Um, 
Now, it doesn't mean within the indigenous communities, I mean, they certainly want monumental cedars, but they will also want some of these cedars to cut uh, for um, basically ceremonial purposes or for, you know, recrafting a dugout canoe or, you know, something um, special in their culture. Uh -huh. um, and so, yeah, so, so I would say the highest value uh, is probably in that domain of, of the spiritual cultural realm. Ecologically, they, I mean, I, I guess you can refer to uh, Dr. Samard's work, um, you know, in terms of the function of them, it's very different than in a second growth forest, I guess. So there's, there's a lot of things happening on the ground that I frankly don't pretend to understand uh, but but certainly we can say there's ecological value um, to uh -huh. these unique ecosystems uh -huh. um, but you know these all these and you know societies have grappled with this for thousands of years how do you make this trade-off between spiritual cultural ecological um, and economic value uh -huh. Uh -huh. the fact is um and I think you saw that, uh, I, I think I'm correct, that, the, that there was a picture of a big logging truck with the one big tree on it uh, back a week or so ago, coming down the, <clears throat> the highway yes. on Vancouver Island. And it turned out it was going to a small manufacturer to make um, basically soundboards for guitars. And uh, so... I don't know. I, I once wrote a paper on musical instrument making and big old growth trees definitely make the best musical instruments. Uh, I, I wonder how uh, people who might buy those instruments might feel about the fact they're buying a thousand year old, you know, wood from a thousand year old tree. Yeah. So it's interesting. Uh, I mean, and it's not just you'll see this around the world. I mean, there's <laughs> court cases in the U.S., for example, with guitar manufacturers getting trees illegally out of uh, Madagascar and so on right. um, for, you know, because in musical instrument making, they, they need very they have very specific requirements. So. Uh -huh. So, uh, yeah, so that's a conversation to be had, I guess, with musicians. I would say probably most are just unaware um of the consequences but um what about wildlife there must be uh, for the old trees uh, more like wildlife must be a benefit i don't see how wildlife can can succeed as much in second growth or new forests just without that diversity height you know little crevices habitat and, yeah. habitats yeah, yeah so there have been studies on this too and it's funny you're hitting all the topics i started to study when i was a young uh, student uh -huh. um you know so you can take one old tree and and a biologist might look at it through time and you can record. I know the study I looked at, uh, there was over 70 species that were used it as habitat as it was slowly decaying, right? So let's say it's an old tree, it dies, it still performs this huge ecosystem function uh, in that decaying process. transition into something that I'm sure we ta you've talked about before but this indigenous issue this has been the taken over maybe a bit of the narrative over the last couple of weeks government's definitely been talking about it is hey that we signed the United Nations uh, declaration on the rights of indigenous people and we're trying to navigate that world of 
of the role that indigenous people must say they have over their own resources. Yeah. And this has become a very muddy issue, in my opinion. And I don't know enough to comment on it, but you must be dealing with this all the time. Like, can you kind of talk about the, the role of the Pachadat here and the, the Dididat? Is that it? I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, yeah, I mean, this, this, this con this 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 issue of 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 colonialism um you know it 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 pervades every issue that we talk about in this part of the world especially resource issues and especially land use issues and the 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 oppression and exclusion of indigenous peoples is 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 undeniable and it's the largest outstanding injustice in this part of the world um the 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 logging industry and 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 colonialism are, are, are linked, right? One of the reasons to oppress and and subdue indigenous peoples and dispossess them of their lands was to exploit the resources, right? That that's that's what a colony like Canada and BC was was founded on, and we need yeah. to acknowledge that. Absolutely. It doesn't, that doesn't erase the fact that uh, that that other you know more well-meaning forces like environmentalism have perpetuated uh, that that colonialism, right? Eco eco colonialism is is an established term, and it's something that uh, organizations like the Wilderness Committee, where I work, and, and others are, are trying to grapple with, right? Um, it can't just be about big trees or rare birds. Um, it, it needs to be about justice for the people that have always stewarded. Uh, uh, these lands and, and forests and are part of them. Um, it's a huge complex issue and and it's made tough by the fact it's, it's made tougher by the fact that uh, you know government government and industry seeing the writing on the wall they're seeing that the that the days of just going in and extracting resources and providing no benefit to the local indigenous communities those those days are over uh, and so and so they're striking revenue sharing agreements and and, and partnership deals increasingly um, where this where this again gets extremely complicated is is when there's division within these communities right uh -huh. we we saw the huge flashpoint uh a year ago uh on on Wet'suwet'en territory between the hereditary and the elected uh yeah. governance um i support uh i, I support Pachida sovereignty and, and 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 the sovereignty of all indigenous nations um, but it's but it's hard when you have a component of of the nation a component of of the leadership uh, saying, "Hey, you know, we support this logging, and and uh, and the um, and and protesters need to get off our territory." And then you have other members of the community that are involved in the protest, right? Like, right. like I ten days ago, I watched I watched several Pachydat youth get arrested by the RCMP. Wow, uh, you know, so it's just that that story. It's it's not as simple as just, "Hey, the nation signed an agreement." Also, this language that that you know the 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 real the position that that nations are put in is is the logging. You know, this is a tree farm license. This is a crown tenure uh, leased on behalf of the queen to a logging company to a private corporation based in Surrey. Uh, they're going to log it whether the Pachydat say yes or no. They have a legal duty to let them know their plans, consult with them, but the nations don't have the right to say yes or no, right? In give, until until uh, UNDRIP is fully implemented, right? Which is, which we're nowhere near that. So um, when, when, when Horgan says, oh, you know, it's not right for us to uh, announce deferrals like the panel told us to uh, because, because it's not our forests, um, 
you know, the saying we can't protect forests uh, without, without indigenous say so is a good standard, but it's a double standard because not a single tree that's logged is, is, is held to that same standard. Right, that's the problem, um, and 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 the government is putting no uh, no revenue on the table, frankly, to offset any revenue that would be lost by deferring old growth. They're not stepping up and saying, "Hey, you know, your nation uh, obtains this much uh, through through old growth logging on your territory in a year." Uh, you know, we'll double that and defer logging and, th and then have a nation to nation engagement with you, right? That's what, that's what, that's what this moment demands. That's what creative uh, reconciliation, uh, I think, looks like. Instead, government's just saying, you know, if you go with deferrals, you know, you'll lose that revenue. And if you okay the logging, you'll get the revenue. Right? Well, how much, Torres, how much are we talking about? I mean, that's an interesting idea. I mean, in terms <laughs> of like replacement funding, are we talking yeah. tens of millions of dollars? Are we talking $2 million? No, 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 no. So, so as, as far as I know, the exact terms of the revenue sharing agreement are private, uh, but, but essentially uh, nations uh, like Pachidat and Dididat uh, through a revenue sharing agreement obtain a portion uh, of the government revenue from logging on the territory, mm -hmm. right? So government revenue for logging uh, comes from comes from uh, stumpage rates, essentially. Mm -hmm. uh, if you if you're a logging company, you have a you have one of these long term tenures. Uh, for every cubic meter of timber that you harvest, you have to pay a little bit of revenue. It's a really small amount. Companies are always fighting uh, to pay less and less. Uh, and in the same breath that they argue that logging supports <laughs> your schools and hospitals. And if you're against old growth logging, you're against schools and hospitals. Um, so of the, of the small percentage of the, of the profit derived from, from old growth logging, go government gets a bit of that. And then they share a bit of that with the nation. Um, so, you know, obviously for a small indigenous community that's had its land and resource stolen for hundreds of years, uh, no amount of money, you know, a, a small, even small amounts of money are really significant. I'm not trying to downplay that, um, but, but, but that's what it, it, it looks like. We need to, we need, government needs to be offering that. They need to be given a choice because after, after 150 years of colonization, you know, the, the choice to uh, accept logging at the bank council level and get revenue or uh, approve deferrals and not get revenue, that's not a choice. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I see what you're saying. Is that yeah. a and common it, request, Torrance? Is this kind of like, I'm not going to say a demand of protesters, but is this something, is, is there any consensus among people who are protesting on what the ideal policy outcome is to help resolve this? It sounds like that's probably one of them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, again, the only the only like group that I speak for is Wilderness Committee, but but we're we're calling for uh, deferral of the most at risk old growth uh, as as recommended by the panel uh, with with compensation and and hell, I, I'd like to see compensation go beyond just just revenue sharing agreements with the nations. I'd like to see them extended to uh, any contract loggers that are out of work. Right. The the, the pandemic has shown shown. Us that when when government wants to, it can step up and 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 pay workers right and, and help support workers. So if uh, if 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 Teal Jones, you know, if 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 old growth deferrals at the at risk old growth uh, within their tenure 
you know, took away a certain percentage of logging. Uh, I think that the, the two nations should be completely compensated for any lost revenue or more, frankly. Uh, and that's not including funding for nation to nation uh, talks about what should happen uh, moving forward on that land. Um, and, and I'd like to see some uh, a fund set up to support workers and to support contractors through this. Right. Um, I mean, <laughs> we're, we're spending, I, I, I shudder to think of the enforcement budget for the RCMP, um, which I guess would be federal, but you know, <laughs> there's money being spent. There's no cheap options here. And I think that, you know, no one denies that a crisis like COVID requires government stepping up and, and opening, uh, opening the purse a bit. Uh, and, and I, and I think, you know, this late hour, uh, when it comes to old growth and when it comes to the forest industry requires that also. One thing that strikes me, this is just a bit of a change in the conversation quickly. I'd like to see your historical take on it, Gary, is I think you talked about people looking for a connection and we're in this online crazy world. And of course, most people are stuck on their phones and Instagram. And so these tree pictures have gone viral and, and the, 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 you know, the protesters are posting daily updates and all that. It makes me actually have a lot of respect for what happened in Clayquot Sound, considering there was no internet at that time. And the people no. there managed to get this message out. Like I know Midnight Oil, the rock band from Australia flew in. Yeah. It, it almost, <laughs> it's almost shocking how well they did to amplify the message considering there's no internet. Yeah, exactly. Well, there was a huge interest, I think, in Europe. So, I mean, the, yeah. so one of my old professors, uh, you know, was on the Clay Cut Sound Scientific Panel, which was like a world-class effort. Uh, to bring science into the discussion, right? And it, it somebody told, once told me in Germany, they, <laughs> Clayco Sound became more famous than the rest of Canada. Like they knew more about Clayco Sound than they did anything else about the whole wow. country. Uh, so, so it had a huge impact um, in countries like Germany, uh, these efforts to try and facilitate this discussion. I'm, I mean, we were talking about old growth then and that, you know, when I was out there doing FSC certification, we were having exactly the same conversations around uh, what are we going to do to manage for old growth. So the scientists of that time, and all of them were ecologists, by the way, uh, on that panel, mm. uh, came up with some, I think, very sensible solutions at the time to try and bring in um, uh, different um, harvesting systems, very different approaches to traditional uh, clear-cut logging. And in fact, they even convinced the Greens at the time, convinced the company, which was Macmillan Bodell, uh, basically to stop clear-cut logging and to go with what we called uh, a variable retention silviculture, and then later became something called ecosystem-based management uh, mm -hmm. in the Great Bear Rainforest. So you know, the, there was a lot of experimental trials. There was a lot of really great ideas that were tried at the time. Um, but one of the tragedies of, 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 um, of human existence is that once the heat is on, we do things, we're innovative. And then if the, the, if, if the pressure goes away, then we, we have this incredible tendency to just go back to doing business as usual. Uh -huh. Uh, yeah. because it's just more work, it's more difficult. And to some extent, you know, I, I think that that's, uh, that's a still an ongoing challenge. We, you can see why um, pressure groups or pressure 
<clears throat> can help uh, to catalyze change, but then it's how to sustain it. I think, is, I think that's happened. Candidate. We've seen, I mean, in the, in the past couple of weeks we've been following this, there has been a lot of progress so much that it's hard to keep up with. And just yesterday, the big news, and I'd like to hear your take on this, was that mm -hmm. uh, local indigenous groups, Pachadat and Dididat, have asked for a two-year, I don't know if it's a moratorium, while they right. sort out their, their forest management. And uh, I can't help but see that as, as a win for people who wanted to preserve this area. What's your take on this? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I'm, uh, you know, a huge proponent, frankly, of much more indigenous uh, control over the land. I, I do think I work with a lot of indigenous groups in the last 20 years. And so there is a they bring a different ethic and a different um, approach to land management that I think for this kind of conversation is very helpful and useful. Uh -huh. uh, I do know out there that so uh, actually a couple of uh, foresters that I've known for uh, since I've gotten back to uh, BC uh, who were heavily involved for at least 10 years in helping the Hawaiian, uh figure out how they wanted to manage that land out mm -hmm. there uh, and uh, were heavily involved in helping with the negotiations and trying to figure out what the price tag was going to be you know, what the tenure changes were going to be. So it took at least, I would say, to get to where they are today, at least a decade of really hard work uh, to, to get to this, you know, announcement. And I think, um, yeah, so I, I see it as, I, I think uh, the fact that it's the First Nations who've stepped forward to put in the moratorium is, uh, is, a, is a step in the right direction, a huge step in the right direction, in fact. Yeah. So, I agree with you fully. And I think it's probably a very big part of reconciliation too, is increasing yeah. land management of, of First Nations. It is their land after all. Um, and I think probably consistent with some of the court rulings we've seen over the last several years, including the Chilcotin ruling, et cetera. Sure. And I just want to circle back to the indigenous, thank you for that answer. It's very well stated. I'd want to circle back around to the indigenous relations question, because I thought you did a really good job of laying out the complexities. And I think it probably helps to explain why many non-indigenous people are on the sidelines because it feels like a minefield, right? Especially when you're walking into a situation in the Pachidat where the elected band council seems largely in favor of the logging and then the elders and maybe the, the hereditary chiefs, at least from my perspective, my you know, outside perspective seem largely opposed. Mm -hmm. And so there's, 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 you know, I mean, just like any human community, there's going to be disagreements. And it's yeah. always been something that kind of bothers me in BC politics and history. When we talk about a first nation, and as though they all share the same brain. When in reality, there are disagreements, whether it comes to Site C or LNG or old growth, whatever it is, there's, there's different points of view, just like in any human community. And so I think all non-Indigenous people should be mindful of that right off the bat, regardless of which, which side you stand on on some particular yeah. debate. Yeah, exactly. It's, you know, some of the best, some of the best, you know, teachings and advice I've, I've received from uh, folks in, 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 in First Nations that I've been lucky enough to, to get to know and learn from is that, is that relationships are so important and, and honoring relationships, right? And a lot of us have relationships with people in Pachidat uh, and, and other communities and 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 they're looking to us and saying hey we, we need you to stand with us right now we need you just to help help stand against this logging you know elder elder bill jones right like i've i've known him for 10 years 
um, you know, I, I, I love him. I consider him, you know, a, a mentor and, and, and a teacher. And it's just, you know, to say, oh, um, you know, we can't, we can't stand with and, and honor those relationships. It's, it's really difficult, right? And I know a lot of the, the blockade leaders have those deep relationships within the community too. Um, and, and it's just, you know, the, the fact that the fact that the measured and kind of non radical option is, is just to continue with the status quo. There's, there's nothing more extreme than, than what's happening out on the land. Uh -huh. You know, uh, we, again, to, to circle back to the Wet'suwet'en issue, uh, Horgan himself said, oh, you know, it's complicated with the hereditary chiefs and the elected chiefs. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, but then he said, you know, while we sort out this complexity, the right course of action is just build the pipeline. And that's, you know, I, I, I agree with them on the complexity. I just disagree with them on the, on the, on the what to do in the meantime, right? When you move into a new apartment and you're trying to decide, you know, where the bookshelf should go, you, you just leave the bookshelf, you know, in the middle of the room for a couple of days, you leave the books in the boxes, right? You don't set up the bookshelf before you've made the decision, right? And this is, this is just a trivial thing like apartment layout, you know, when we're talking about massive irreversible decisions like continued old growth logging or <laughs> building new fossil fuel infrastructure in a climate crisis, <laughs> the fact that we should just go ahead with it uh, while there's this huge ethical consideration and, and, and why these, while these sovereign nations that we've disrupted so much for so long are, are trying to sort out these fundamental issues, I, I just think it's wrong and I, and I think more caution uh, is required and, and we need to be brave enough to have that conversation. I wanted to talk a bit, I mean, I want to talk a bit more about economics, if we could, Gary. And, you know, we sure. had a conversation with Torrance Cost, who um, who works for Wilderness Committee. And in fact, we will probably splice this conversation in with that one because we're having the same conversation. And um, I asked him what it would mean, what are the economic complexities of shifting from old growth to second and third growth? And so I want to ask you, same question, Gary. What is that stake economically? What are the challenges economically? Why can't forestry companies just shift to second and third growth? What are the, what are the challenges and costs there? Uh, lots of challenges <laughs> and lots of costs. So one of the great conundrums of our time now is we all, we all talk about transitioning, right? We all want to transition to a net zero economy. We want to transition. Uh -huh. uh, we, I mean, this was, you know, went back when they started the Great Bear Rainforest, it was, it was really, okay, we're going to transition to the conservation economy. Uh -huh. uh, the great aspirations, there's, not, there's even something now for all of Canada called the Transition Accelerator. And so you can look that up. So everybody is trying to transition. And it's, it's a fascinating um, conversation because we can't agree on the time scale that we are willing to live with in that transitioning. I mean, we see it happening around us anyway, but then do we, if we want to accelerate it, um, then uh, that's going to take a lot of energy by a lot of people to figure that out. And so I'm very involved in the discussion worldwide, uh, not just here in BC, uh, on, on the transitioning to the bioeconomy. So mm -hmm. And of course, then that, that means that there's different cost structures and different 
financial benefits that will go to different people than in the old uh, economic model. And, you know, so that, that gets people very exercised, right? So, uh, so uh, yeah, so, I mean, one thing is, well, uh, if we have a lot of second growth forests on Vancouver Island, when is it actually going to be ready to harvest? You can't just go, you know, the tree needs to be of a certain size uh-huh. and quality to actually make a product. Uh-huh. Uh, and you, and so one of the, the we in, in the interior, it's referred to as the, um, uh, you know, the, there's this age class gap where there's a bunch of forest that's too young uh-huh. and you're going to have to wait for two or three decades before it's actually ready to be harvested to make products, uh, you know, whether it's solid wood products or, uh, and, and because you need, really, you need solid wood products um in order to justify the economics if you just you know we're not i don't think vancouver island will just be a let's say a pulp uh, mill plantation right right? it just just doesn't make sense there you might as well do that in brazil Hmm. where the trees grow 10 times faster or maybe seven or eight so there's literally not enough second growth then to harvest yeah, so that that is one. I, I mean, I haven't looked at the inventory for a long time, but but that would be one of the big challenges: is how much inventory is there to uh-huh. keep the existing structure going. Um, and so you you know as you as you're going to see this decline in old growth logging to zero. I mean, at some point it's going to hit zero, uh-huh. and it's got to hit zero by a certain date. Now, uh-huh. is that 2030 or 2040? That that's you know um, that's a that's a conversation that's a public conversation that needs to be had and uh-huh. really a, an agreement needs to be made around that uh-huh. um, and then um, and then okay so if you're going to make this transition faster it usually means there's got to be a lot of adjustment programs okay uh-huh. we got to create some new jobs we need new skills if we're going to take if we're going to have fewer loggers uh, in the bush then how can I create more manufacturing jobs? Uh, how do I create new markets? How do I make new products? You know, right. that are you talking about the shift from like high volume to high value? Yeah, which I know BC is, you know, talked about for at least <laughs> most of my career. Right. Uh, and you see snippets of success with it. But, and I've, I remember many years ago, you know, trying to think, okay, how can we adapt the, let's say central european model uh-huh. uh, from switzerland or or austria to here and it's you know the biggest challenge we had at the time was transportation distance uh you know there you can move wood you know uh, 100 kilometers is a long distance well you know in in canada it can be five or six hundred kilometers well uh-huh. just that alone makes just the logistics of it makes it uh, really, really much more expensive. Uh-huh. And um, so those are, the, the, you know, the economics is, um, yeah, it, 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 we're going to, we, as a society, you know, we, we could decide to subsidize it. Now, then the Americans are going to be breathing down your neck because you're subsidizing uh, a change. Uh, so then you've got, you know, the politicians have that challenge. Um, or, uh, and then you've got to attract a new kind of investor. Um, let's say I'm interested in carbon finance. I work a lot in, um, in the area of carbon finance and carbon accounting because I do feel a part of the way to create a revenue stream for as we make the change, 
is to integrate the idea of carbon payments uh, into uh, uh, managing forest. Right, and that's been a big part of Great Bear, right? Is that it's a yeah, recipient of yeah. offsets? Although I, to be perfectly honest, uh, it, it that could use a lot of improvement. Hmm. Okay. Uh, and I know uh, instances where some of that is being reevaluated. So it's not it's not like the first time out the gate we get it right. Right. <laughs> right. So there's a lot of continuous learning to do around this idea of creating a new market uh, for, you know, what is it? Carbon. You know, right. it's pretty. For most people, it's a tough one to <laughs> to grab onto, right. but but it's real, and I and I've seen many success stories around the world, and I but trying to get everybody in society to agree on the right set of rules and the the right programs and who owns the carbon, all of those discussions. Yeah. I mean, that can be a podcast unto itself, but your point is well taken about ecosystem services and payments for ecosystem services. But just yeah. sticking with costs and challenges of transitioning to post old growth logging. I mean, yep. certainly your point is very well taken about the need to actually shift towards uh, high value added products rather than high volume, but just like even more granular level, like what is the complexity at a mill that's been oriented towards, how does a mill shift from old growth logging to second growth? Just give us, uh, give us a sense of what that Yeah, means. so we have, for example, at the university now, we have something called the Bioproducts Research Institute. So we're not only are we looking at, uh, you know, we're, we're looking to, at uh, uh, the goal, frankly, is to replace all fossil fuels with biologically based products uh-huh. from, uh, you know, a, a paper beer can um, or paper beer bottle, I should say, or whiskey bottle out of paper. Uh-huh. The, these are the kind, there's chemicals that um, biochemical industry is huge. Uh-huh. Um, we have people in our labs that are actually making materials for replacing human bones in the body to repair your shoulders or repair. So, so these biologically based products can have tremendous value. And, and, but the, the goal that we have within the Institute is to replace fossil fuels. Uh And, uh, and so this is where I think the exciting part is, is, is uh, being a lot more aspirational and creative around supporting the scientists who are uh, helping to develop these new products. Because um, so it's not just value added is, is, is kind of an old term now. I would call okay. it um, the cascading of products. So we need okay. to make maybe we only need 0.1% of the material coming out of the forest and to make the most valuable product. And it could be a chemical or it could be a you know, a medicine, it could be lots of things. So, uh, and we have to figure out then what we call the cascading. How do we move from the high value to the low value where, okay, there's some material left, we might have to burn it. Right. Right? For example, and make energy, but at least we're replacing fossil fuel. What is the most valuable bioproduct that you can think of right now? Uh, probably in, uh, phytochemicals. So that means in, in things, uh, there's some very high, you know, making, let's say things equivalent to aspirin, uh, drugs. Um, um, you know, we've known willow, you know, for, 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 have been used for that kind. So probably the pharmaceutical industry would be the highest value, uh, where you would start. And then you'd come down to oils, cedar oils and all sorts of things like that. 
Um, but then I say, um, as I mentioned, there's, there's these scientists doing fantastic work uh, at the Bioproducts Institute around a whole range of new products that, you know, I hadn't even thought of yet, but they're not commercialized in the sense, but you need to do years of research and testing before, you know, you would introduce some of these materials into the human body, for example. So, but that's all happening. And, wow. and I think it's a very exciting part of the future. And, and I point to my Scandinavian colleagues, if you want to see how far this can go, uh, I think they're taking it there much faster uh, than we are. This is a question right off the top of my head and um, probably shows how much little I know about the situation, but I'm going to ask it because I imagine a lot of people are in the situation. One of my you know, things that frustrates me about logging oil growth is I think there's so much potential for opening up oil growth areas for tourism, for locals, for looking at other sources of revenue, whether that be uh, camping, day hiking, tourism, yoga retreats, spiritual retreats, possibly, you know, with indigenous people leading this type of work. Jeremy and I talked to the Songhees last week who are really opening up the blue economy, as they call it, and developing, like, they're, they're fully into tourism and, and seeing that as their path forward. And I, I feel so bad that as Victoria residents, we don't have these options to go check out our local old growth trees. And when I see Ferry Creek on the map, I go, wow, that is such a perfect location. People drive up there all the time. It's not far from Port Renfrew. Are those sorts of big things being discussed? I feel like we're really missing that discussion right now. What, what else can you do with this stuff to raise revenue and open it up? Yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate the question. I do try to I do try to push back on on the jump immediately to like revenue replacement. Right. And I think that like I think that the, the at the end of the day, a lot of the problems when we look around uh, across this island and province and country and planet are are because of this relationship between one species ours and and the world around us and and you know to I, I like to try to just I'm going to answer the question but I like to frame uh you know how can we think about about our relationship to these ecosystems in in an, in in that non-revenue based way yeah um but it is an important question and and I think that like you know whether it's tourism whether it's things like non-timber forest products um I just think you know we need to be talking about diversity right and 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 the more options there are uh for you know people to go to work or or people to earn a living um pay taxes and support services in a place the, the more the more stable that place is going to be right um and 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 that's and that's what we're seeing across across the forest industry is is the towns that have the 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 most dependence, the most eggs in one basket, are are in the toughest way economically, right? Like, you know, there's there's more there's more boarded up businesses on the north end of the island than on the south end of the island, frankly, right. because, yeah. because logging is in decline and it's a better part of it's a bigger part of the pie up there. Um, so I think when we talk about community resilience and and you know I want these places to be around forever but like the reality is there's there's already logging ghost towns right there's 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 small camps and then there's towns of like a couple thousand people that were booming 50 years ago and are gone now 
Um, and, and so I want to talk about, you know, I think we need to think about that, right? Um, there's, there's the obvious example on the West Coast is Tofino, right? Not without, not without its own challenges. Um, but, you know, in the, in the 80s and 90s, uh, you know, because of its, of its prevalence and, and its site, uh, you know, amidst this formative, a couple formative moments in the, in the environmental movement, um, the, the whole region started to shift towards, uh, you know, less dependence on resource extraction and more dependence on, uh, on um, tourism. On tourism, yeah, there's still there's still there's still fishing uh, and there's still forestry in the southern part of Clackwood Sound, but it's not it's not the bulk of of um, of the economy, right? And 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 that long term place, right? Like in the in the middle fifties, I think the one of the richest per capita uh, jurisdictions in Canada was Port Alberni. Right wow. when, when when fishing and logging were booming at the same time, right? Most most places, you know, one one happened and then the other. Maybe there was a mining boom thrown in there, but some of the peak years for fishing and some of the uh, peak years for logging were, were at the same time, and and Port Alberni was 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 rolling in money, right? Wow. And and fast forward seventy years, sixty years. And, you know, it, it's when, when those really like callous rankings get done, I don't know who does them of like, of like crime rates and like the worst. Fraser places. Institute. Yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. It, it gets ranked as, as, a, as, a, as, a, as one of the worst places in Canada to live, which I, you know, <laughs> completely disagree with. I think Port's great. Um, but, but, you know, yeah, it, it has to be just switching, you know, from full dependence to uh, from, from logging or, or resource extraction to full dependence on tourism, uh, you know, builds in that same instability. Um, we're seeing that obviously with the with the pandemic, right? And, and jurisdictions that are heavily reliant on tourism are are in more trouble than ones that aren't. So to yeah. me, it's about it's about diversity. And and the thing is not all different options in terms of economies and, and industries. Uh, limit the abilities of the other ones, right? So if you lead a, a hiking tour in a forest, that doesn't limit the ability of, say, you know, a big research program to come in and, and study screech owls the next year and, and, uh -huh. and provide and stay in the community and, and pump some money into the local economy. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't limit the ability of, of you know, uh, mushroom picking for, for right. fine dining or something like that. Clear-cut logging does. Right. When, when you log a forest that basically eliminates, you know, a couple years later, a couple tree planters will come in for a couple weeks and replant the block. But other than that, you know, like that's it's it's essentially we're we're altering it ecologically, you know, forever. Uh, but we're also more or less removing it from the local economy for at least 30 or 40 years, a, a, a career span, basically. And that, and that helps to explain why, like, the Chamber of Commerce in Port Renfrew tends to be really uh, opposed to old growth logging because they understand that there's this possibility for decades of potential ecotourism and the opportunity to extract uh, economic resources from that forest for years rather than just one flush of money, a lot of which uh, just leaves the local community, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, with, with with technology and and the, and the prevalence of of big fast trucks and helicopters, the days of of you know loggers who log around Port Renfrew having to live in Port Renfrew are long gone, 
right? And so most, you know, choose to live in Souk or Victoria or Duncan, right? Um, you know, when you're, when you're, when, when I'm out in the field and I see loggers logging, um, usually the last town that I drove through is Honeymoon Bay or uh, Ubo or Port Renfrew. The odds of those loggers coming from that town are uh, are slim, right? Yeah. I've been on the North Island before, and uh, and I drove up to a block where some loggers were uh, were were on lunch break. And I was talking to them, and they were helied in, and uh, and and one of them didn't know that he was on Vancouver Island. <laughs> he he worked for a company out of Chilliwack. He lived in Chilliwack, and he drove his his truck to the to the company's yard at four in the morning. Jumped in a helicopter. Uh, I don't think I've ever I've never been in a helicopter, so I know if I went in, I would be I would be really whenever I'm in the air in a plane or something, I'm I'm psyched about it, right? Because it's yeah. just so infrequent. I'm taking pictures, looking to see what I could see. But if you go, if that's your daily commute, he said he's he's asleep before the chopper's off the ground. Uh, and then he just wakes up on the block, you know, looks at the plan and starts cutting down trees. He thought he was on the central coast. Um, right. And so, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not trying to downplay it. You know, I've also met fallers that have, have an intimate connection to the, to the, to the land that they work on. And, and I think that needs to be acknowledged too. But um, yeah, the, uh, the technology has, has allowed for uh, the, the, the separation of, um, you know, roots in a place and, and um, amongst a lot of the people that are working there. And, and I think that's why you see towns like Port Renfrew uh, start to talk about, you know, the, the, the potential for tourism and, and other industries. I've always wanted to ask you, like, I, I imagine your job's pretty intense. I mean, how often do you, like, do people scream at you? Like, do you ever have loggers, like, yell at you? Have you ever been physically accosted? Like, how intense does your job get? <laughs> um, I mean... Yeah, this is so, so, so building, building solidarity, like, like my, you know, I, I get called, you know, uh, watermelon all the time. You know, that's like a derogatory slur no. for like left-leaning environmentalists, green on the outside, red on the inside. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, <laughs> that's, that's an accurate description of my politics. And, and I, I, I believe in, in worker solidarity and, and I care about, um, building solidarity uh, with with workers in resource industries. Um, I'm from a resource family myself. My, my dad was a commercial fisherman when I was growing up. Mm. Um, and and so yeah, I've I've tried to put a lot into that. Um, but the 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 state of the resource, the, the state of the forest sector. We talk a lot about about how much oil growth is disappearing. Um, a, a stat, and you know that how many how many soccer fields worth of oil growth are getting logged every day in BC. Those stats those stats piss me off as an environmentalist. But as as someone you know who's who's from here, um, you know a settler on these lands, but 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 several generations of my family has been in BC. The stats about the industry make me just as furious, right? Over the right. last ten years, the logging industry has lost on average six jobs a day, wow. right? Um, and that's because largely mechanization, uh, right. and and also the fact that we've cut too much too fast for too long in too many places. Hmm. Um, and so I just want to preface that with with you know I I don't see it as a as a loggers versus tree huggers thing. I think that uh, the same. Uh, logging companies and 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 cynical 
uh, governments, you know, exploit workers, close mills, uh, and and implement these 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 really uh, neoliberal policies for the same reasons that they cut, you know, in endangered caribou habitat or or cut down fifteen year fifteen hundred year old yellow cedars, right. right? And so I think we need to, and the environmental movement has has done, frankly, a, a terrible job of building that class solidarity over its history, and and that's another piece that I'm that I'm interested in. So this 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 interest and this effort has brought me into logging communities um, before the pandemic in like the two years before the pandemic. Uh, we hosted uh, 14, 13 uh, town hall meetings uh, north of the Comox Valley, oh. right? So uh, Port McNeil, Port Hardy, Campbell River. Um, oh. These are, you know, it's, it's, it's nothing to go and do, a, you know, a town hall about old growth logging at the Fernwood Community Center, right? right, it, right. Um, it's a lot different in Campbell River Report. I imagine. And Where so do you get there? like begrudging respect from, from these communities or is, are they sort of standoffish? Like what's their attitude? It's a mix. Towards? It's a mix, right? So, so you know, um, we had one and there was, and there was, you know, s some of the things that, that just come up are, are, are take my breath away, right? We had one faller and he said, you know on on the north island uh do you reckon do you reckon there's enough old growth that we'll be logging it for another five years and i said you know like probably right uh and and but you know not not guaranteed far beyond that and and the faller said okay like i'm my i'm on a three-year retirement path so in three years i'll come out and start protesting with you guys <laughs> and just wow. like the psychology going on there is, is beyond <laughs> me um in another meeting there were there were four or five fallers uh you know in like literally in stanfields and carhartts covered in chainsaw like just fresh from the bush still got sawdust on them and at, at our public meeting about logging and and they were you know young late 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 20s maybe early 30s and they stood at the back uh and and you know we we were getting leaned into pretty hard by by the older generation um a lot of a lot of professional foresters who do the planning are really proud of what they do uh and 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 this group of followers they they stayed the whole time they didn't ask any questions didn't make any comments and after they left and another local came up and said you know those five are all followers they, they all work in the bush and and you know he he said my my my, my take is that they all are are they all know they're not going to be logging old growth for their whole career Right, like if you're if you're if you're a logger and you're 50, there's a chance that you'll see your career out. Um, you know, if the industry remains dependent on on old growth logging, if you're if you're my age, no chance, right? And I think a lot of people think about that. So we have those decent interactions. Um, we had another we had another guy who I think he interrupted me five times in the introduction of like my little <laughs> talk, uh, and he just he leaned into us, um, you know, the whole two hour meeting. Then that was in Campbell River. A couple nights later, we did we, we usually do like speaking series where we'll do five town halls in a week or something like that. So it's intense, uh, and I usually throw up before just because I'm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and then you know five minutes into the one in Courtney two nights later the same guy walks in right huh. he was just as antagonistic just as aggressive uh he stayed the whole time he stayed when we were like packing up our projector and like packing up our materials and stuff he helped us carry our table out to the truck and then and then he laid into us for like another another 10 minutes in the parking lot and eventually you know i was saying look like it's a, it's a, a lot of our problems are with these giant corporations right half the forest 
uh, in BC is controlled just by five corporations. Oh. And he said, and he said, uh, oh, you know, but like you guys just do this general advocacy. And, and he, he owned a small woodlight. He was, a, he was like a, a small, like mom and pop forest operation. Right. And he said like government will never like tailor to us. They'll always look out for the big corporations and screw over the little guy. It's those bastards down in Victoria. And I was like, now we're talking, right? <laughs> like now we're getting onto the same page a bit, but it, it literally took four and a half hours of yelling at each other first. Wow. And so like, no one does that work. And, 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 and that's a huge problem. And then I'll just, I'll finish this part by adding that it is, it is getting worse, right? The, the, the Western Forest Products strike uh, made things really tough for a lot of communities. You know, there's, there's right. marriages ending, there's people losing their houses. Um, it's not good. Uh, and, and the state of the industry is not good. Um, our last scheduled town hall was in Campbell River uh, in, in, at the end of November, just before uh, COVID. And, uh, and it got canceled by the city of Campbell River and the RCMP because they were worried about security. Right, because um, you know, uh, environmental groups are, are, and environmentalism in general is a is a really handy scapegoat um, for you know industrial decisions around around cutting rates and government policies uh, that are that are putting these communities in a really bad way. Uh, you know, it's easy to be like, oh, it's not because of that. It's it's a, it's about these groups and these individuals speaking out about against forests. So oh. no, it's not all good conversations. You know, uh, a lot myself and peers have received threats uh, online, and uh, yeah, it's um it's really charged and it's really heated. Um, and and just the the ability of government and logging companies to pit these different working classes against each other because it goes the other way too, right? Lots of Lots of environmentalists, you know, are just like, oh, every every logger is like a redneck Trump voter, um, you know, and and that's definitely a component. The the link between uh, between like you know your your far right Canada proud type groups um, and 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 resource communities is is there and growing. Um, I know one of the like the one of the like astroturf uh, pro logging groups that's really prevalent on Vancouver Island uh, has recently been doing a bunch of like partnership videos with Aaron Gunn um oh, you know okay. so yeah. so it's 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 a p it's a it's a factor for sure um but and 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 yeah it's it's another really really hard part of this one of the things we wanted to talk about and thanks for that torrance uh, this is very fascinating is is what's after old growth like what's the future of logging yeah. and i noticed you posted a photo the other day of a second growth forest that from above the photo basically looked like a blanket or a lawn it's all these trees are all identical um, you know, we're seeing this uh, movement up north BC of the stop the spray where they're having to sp spray whatever chemicals it is to glyphosate. Like yeah. to kill off some of the birch trees, I believe, so that some uh -huh. of the actual harvestable trees can come forward. So there's still these problems with second growth, although I think a lot of us hope we can come up with some sort of system that allows for robust second growth, like f tree farming, essentially, that can sustain the forestry economy mm -hmm. or, you know, the future of British Columbia. But there's problems there. Are you optimistic about that all? Are you working on that? You know, the, the post old growth at all? Are you just focused kind of on? Let's no, just no. I mean, you have to. You have to. This is a really good question. You have to be optimistic that we can make some change, or or I would have lost my mind years ago. Um, basically, you know, there there has to be a future in 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 looking at in looking at balance, right? And and these industries that are based on natural systems at the end of the day they we have to break out of this paradigm that we're going to make more in quarter three than we did in quarter two 
or you know that the industry is just going to keep growing year after year right we we need to figure out uh, a, a percentage of the of our gdp that's going to be derived from forestry uh it's currently like four um and three or four percent or less um, and and we need to we need to figure out how many like what's the goal how many jobs do we want in, in bc uh to come from this sector direct and indirect um and 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 that's you know an extremely tough uh mindset to 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 get into that's not how the global economy is is built um you know there are there are jurisdictions where old growth is not a part of the cut right um a lot of a lot uh -huh. of forestry in scandinavia only cuts replanted forests uh and it's because they pretty much logged all their old growth well yeah and germany right? too yeah 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 and so and so yeah uh, the, the piece that interests me is is around efficiency and again um you know to 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 the NDP's credit, they have they have really talked about shifting uh, from volume to value. Uh, they just haven't done enough to get there, like like most things on on forestry and environment. Um, the BC the BC model uh, of the forest industry is based on volume, right? It's based on the most amount of fiber extracted, uh, frankly, for the for the fewest amount of dollars, right? And that's why that's why um, that's why that's why raw log exports are, are so prevalent, right? So so cutting down trees, cutting off the branches, and then and then putting them on ships ships and sending them to jurisdictions where it's cheaper to turn them into things, right? Uh -huh. Jurisdictions that have weaker weaker labor laws and and weaker uh, like emissions regulations at the mill sites. Right. That's the most efficient thing to do if you're looking at maximizing volume. Right? right and you're a tenure holder so when we look at like when we look at the forest industry bc the bc forest industry dwarfs uh the rest of the country right the next two biggest are quebec and ontario and they're and they're tiny compared to bc's right in terms of both uh in terms of both dollar value and number of jobs but bc's is the most efficient inefficient pardon me uh, it's we in terms of uh, a, a cubic meter right is is a classic um, is a classic uh, kind of unit uh, of measurement right a cubic meter is roughly a city telephone pole right so in some second growth forest that's how big the trees are uh, but in you know in Fairy Creek there's there's you know you could get <laughs> you could get 50 or 100 telephone poles out of out of one tree seriously right? um, Oh really? yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, if I could just just jump in here and just continuing on in this in this vein because I think it's a yeah. great uh, question. Oh, well, that... I, I just wanna I just wanna finish that that point. Yeah, so, go, ahead, go ahead. In, in BC, in BC, to, to create one full time job for a year, we need to cut about twelve hundred cubic meters, right? So okay. twelve hundred telephone poles. Uh, you know, we'll 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 give one person a job for a year. In Quebec, uh, the most efficient in Canada, it's it's two hundred and thirty. And that's because there's more value added products being made. That's right. That's okay. right. And the argument, so, the argument is that there's a bigger domestic market because it's a bigger province. Um, it borders on like New York, right? Right. Uh, rather than bordering on the ocean, and so and so the the argument is, oh, you know, we can't produce value added products here because we can't compete with China, for example. But but yeah, it's it's just it's a key thing. If if every if every province was mandated to cut the same amount of wood. Uh, BC would have the smallest forest industry.
in huh. in Canada. And I, I think that's really telling it. And we get smoked by other jurisdictions, you know, like Washington and Oregon. So it's not just a, a difference between. So I, I I wanted to ask you the question of like, well, what would happen if we just stopped old growth logging, let's say a year or two from now, and we had to shift to second and third growth. But I'm, I'm guessing what you would say is that it's it's a much more complex consideration around how much value added products are made, you know, what's happening with raw law exports. But can you just give us some kind of a sense of what the economic implications would be if and when old growth comes to an end? I mean, if we don't do anything, you know, it would, it, it could be, we, we've seen it before, right? I, I, I mentioned my dad was a, my dad was a commercial fisherman. He was a gill netter, right? And there just, there was no planning done. And, and most of the stock collapsed to the point where they couldn't uh, support as big a commercial fish, fishery. Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't as dramatic as like the East Coast cod, but right, it was right. similar, right? And, mm-hmm. and so with no planning and with no investment in transition, uh, it, it, it will be pretty dramatic uh, depending on the region, right? So certain parts of, uh, especially the coast are more dependent on old growth logging. Some parts of the interior wouldn't make that big of a difference, right? Because right. most of the cut comes from replanted forests anyways. Um, but but that's the thing, right? If, if we're not like a lot of the mills are still built to, to process trees that are as wide as your car. <laughs> right they can't just they can't just switch to to mills that are uh that are um that are you know as, as thick as your leg right um to trees that are as thick as your leg so we need to be planning that we need to be making the investment and we need to be having this conversation you know that's not just to do with forestry but with all resource extraction is is like if jobs are the point then you know at a certain point, technological advancements are a problem, right? So, right, so right. If, if you own a mill and you want to upgrade it so that it can mill second growth, not just old growth, mm-hmm. you're not just going to like replace the saws and have the same workers running them. You're no. going to, you're going to replace those workers with robots. Right. And, and uh-huh. this is key because like, when I say the phrase forest industry job or, 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 or logging industry job, what are you, mm-hmm. what are you picturing? A, a faller. Yeah. Yeah, a logger in the woods, right? Yeah. Almost three quarters of forest industry jobs aren't in the forest. Where are they? They're in mills. Hmm. And then so, mills are becoming so, increasingly mechanized, is what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. And so this is this is this is what excites me about the future is if we look at doing more with less, right? If we look at not sending any trees over, because when you when you're when you're cutting forty year old trees that in, in general, the longer you leave a tree, the more you can do with it, right? Mm-hmm. Like a 30 or 40 year old tree, depending on the species is only good for a couple different applications, pulp, mm-hmm. um, fiberboard, things like that. Uh, whereas an 80 year old tree is worth, you know, is, is, it's possible to do so much more with it. A hundred year old tree, even more. And, and of course these, you know, 500, 800, a thousand year old trees, it's limitless, right? This is the best wood in the world. Um, so when you're cutting these younger trees, they're worth so much less. And so you need to cut, you need to cut valleys of them, not just groves of them, mm-hmm. right? You, so, so, you know, when people are like, what's the worst clear cut you've ever seen? They're not old growth forests. They're right. second growth, they're uh-huh. second clear cuts. And that's, that's another huge question is, you know, a common industry line and government line is, oh, we're, you know, we're not ready to switch. The second growth isn't ready. And it's like, well, whose fault is that? You know, and it's not the environmental movement's fault. It's not First Nations fault and certainly not the ecosystem's fault, right? The fact that we cut forests 60 years ago and instead of letting them regenerate and gain value, doing things like extensive silviculture, so thinning them out so that the trees can grow bigger, we've just cleared them again. 
and 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 turn them into pulp or ship them overseas as raw logs. So wow. how we increase that jobs per cubic meter, um, and then and then how do we do that? I mean, hell, like I'd like I'd like to see us get really creative. What if what if we taxed companies based on that? right? If there's two logging companies and they both log uh, a million cubic meters of wood a year, so a million telephone poles, and one creates twice as many jobs, why not, why not tax the other one twice as much, Interesting. <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and, and incentivize that efficiency, right? Um, there's really great work on this done uh, by a colleague, Ben Parfit at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Uh -huh. and, he's, and he's crunched the numbers uh, on certain uh, like forest districts, uh, I believe on the central coast, and, and, and found that if we uh, eliminated raw log exports, um, we could, uh, we could uh, end old growth logging, log second growth, only log less second growth than we currently do and create more jobs than we currently do. Why don't we do that then? By, <laughs> because, because it doesn't make, it's not what makes the most sense if you're Western forest products or one of the other big five, right? right. The big forest companies and the smaller ones like Teal Jones, that's not their motivation. Their motivation right. is, is, is maxing out profits. Right. Right. Um, and, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a frustrating uh, component of this that like, you know, groups like the Wilderness Committee and people like myself get lectured about jobs and supporting the economy by by industry leaders and CEOs that literally are motivated and go out of their way to cut as many jobs. Their whole their whole existence is based on getting as much wood out of the forest right. with as few jobs as possible. Well, your right? points are really well taken because if you think about the regulation and the attention that's been brought to other industries like concrete or construction or whatever, there seems to be so little innovation going on in forestry when it comes to like a tax regime or how you can increase the sustainability. There just seems to be the sense of like, let's just leave forest, forest companies alone. They can do what they want. But you're right that there could be so much more innovation going on in this field so that we actually yeah. create truly sustainable forestry. The, the impression that Matt and I have is that uh, the writing's on the wall that old growth is going to be winding down. I mean, yeah. it's it's taking longer than a lot of us would like, but it seems like the writing's on the wall. Is your interpretation that forestry companies are like, oh shit, we need to extract as much as possible because the end is near? Is that yeah. your yeah. take? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a really like, like, you know, why did approvals spike that much? I mean, if approvals went up by 43%, that means applications went up significantly too. Um, BC government didn't just reject a whole bunch of logging applications uh, in, in the year prior. Uh, most applicate, like I've never really heard of a, of an app, of a logging uh, proposal being submitted and then turned down. That's, that's one of the problems with the regulatory uh, regime. So yeah, you know, is it is it like smoke them if you got them, as they say, you know, where I'm from? Um, I mean, it wasn't that long ago. It was like 15 months ago that you went to the grocery store and you couldn't get, you know, like toilet paper or flour, right? right? It, right. it was it wasn't because people were using more toilet paper. It's because we were worried that it might disappear, right? You know, um, and so so how much you know government came out? They they commissioned this review that said we need a paradigm shift. Uh, and we need to we need to prioritize ecological health over timber extraction. And then government went further in the election campaign and said we're going to save old growth forests. Right. 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 And so our companies just like 
holy crap, like we need to get these permits. And then, you know, <laughs> I don't often argue for like a, for like a fiscal conservative position, but right. in this case, how much more expensive is the Horgan government making its ability to keep its promises, right? Because mm -hmm. eventually there'll have to be some compensation, right? I, I would love it if, if corporate tenure could just be expropriated and, and, and taken back and, and those companies are shit out of luck. Um, sorry if I'm not allowed to swear on your podcast. No, you're um, allowed to. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, but I've kept it together uh, this, this morning. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you know, uh, if, if, if say, you know, eventually the government gets around to it and decides they get agreement from a First Nation and they want to set aside, you know, a thousand hectare valley, right? right. If, if a company has one cut block approved in that valley, they'd have to compensate them for the value of that timber. If right, they have 10 cut blocks approved in that valley, it's, it's going to be 10 times as expensive. Right. Um, and so it backfire. So, it's basically going to backfire. It's going to make it more costly. Like basically to telegraph that the end is near yeah. backfires from a policy standpoint. Yeah, yeah no, totally. There's, there's a really strong argument that, that by saying we're going to save old growth and then not really changing anything uh, substantial on the ground, that, that Oregon is just, you know, that the signal to these companies, especially now that it's coupled with the, with the language uh, in this week's announcement around tenure, uh -huh. right. Yeah, right, right. You know, get into that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so these companies are are being told that the the government is moving to protect old growth eventually, uh, right. and it's moving to redistribute tenure eventually. If I'm one of the big five or or any of the major logging companies on the coast, I am. And and anecdotally, frankly, we're we're kind of hearing this right when the right, right. Western Forest Products, which is the biggest company on the island, uh, went on strike all their mills went down right. and uh, I have some contacts in, uh, in a second growth cedar mill uh, that, that, uh, that is part of Western forest products. One of their mills, the one in Ladysmith and they mill exclusively second growth, right? So right. they don't touch old growth right. and the strike ended, all the loggers went back to work. Some of the mills opened back up, but their mill uh, didn't open back up. Why and, and the word, the word was cause Western wasn't cutting second growth. Right, right. They can right, get to right. that later, right? Uh, interesting. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, and and it's it's back up and going now, but but yeah, no, it's 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 a huge concern. And well, and uh, and, and just to jump in towards that, could end up driving in a sort of unhealthy spiral all the blockades, right? Is like oh, now yeah. that there is going to be yeah. more old growth logging, there's going to be more blockades, there's going to be more tension. It's yeah. like. It's like there's no. It's like it's all backfired. It seems like yeah. from the outside looking in. Yeah. No. It's 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 yeah. This this move to to let's say look. You know we're gonna we're gonna have old new old growth policy in 2023. Uh, the, right. That that coupled with with the 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 lack of creativity in stepping up and working with nations around economic alternatives. And just say, look, if, if you want to get in on the logging on old growth logging, that's your that's your that's your key, right? And so, you know, we kind of heel drag. There's the status quo for another two years, and then come 2023, the government just announces, hey, we're going to transfer all the old growth back to First Nations, and mm -hmm. if you if you oppose them logging it, then you're a colonizer, right? Right, it's, right. It's cynical, and it's it's essentially a ventilator for old growth logging. It's keeping it going. It's artificially extending. Uh, its lifespan and, uh, and, and, and it's extremely frustrating. Torrance, last question for you. And then we're going to wrap. Um, Matt Dell retweeted a, a photo that went viral that was yeah. shared by a woman named Lorna up by Nanaimo that showed yeah. a, a, a gigantic tree. I think it was about 2.5 meters in diameter. It was hard to yeah. tell if it was a cedar or a spruce or what it yeah. was. Um, it made it all the way around the world. It was retweeted by Bill McKibben, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rafi, on and on. Um, 
two questions. Why did that photo in particular strike a chord in 2021, number one? And number two, I've always wanted to ask you or someone in the know, like what is approximately the economic value? Not, not the biodiversity value of that tree, but just narrowly defined, what is the value of one tree like that? Yeah, um, as for why that went, I mean, some we have a pretty good uh, idea that they're gonna get a lot of traction. Um, my colleague TJ Watt at AFA, you know, a, a tactic that he's deployed is, is get in and shoot before and afters, right? right? So he'll get in, take a picture of himself with one of these massive trees, get the geo, get the uh, GIS coordinates, uh, the GPS coordinates, and then like go back in after it's yeah, logged. Sure, yeah. And it's just yeah. like, it's so jarring yeah. uh, that those, that those go viral. Uh, it's, it's a bit of a guessing game, right? Like, you know, sometimes you post a picture and you're like, oh, this is, this is like going to go wild and it gets right. like five likes. And then, and then other times, other times I just post one just because it's what I saw that day and it gets like a whole ton of traction. Um, I think it has to do with the moment, the fact that there's been, you know, the longest, uh, the longest running forest old growth logging blockades, like in two decades right. uh, on the South Island. Um, so that the kind of the public perception, um, but frankly, I, th I think it's to do with the, with the, with the government and, and the messaging that they've, that they've, the things that they've said on old growth. Right. I think right. that if that tree, like you see from time to time, you see like single, single load logs, right. right. Logs that right. take up the whole back of a truck. Um, and, and, you know, but, but it's not always that the government has promised to save old growth. Right, right. right. So, it, so, so it just seems sort of like they're sneaking one past the goalkeeper right in the middle of the RCMP crackdown. It's like, oh, and by the way, this is happening a few kilometers away on the highway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that that's the reality. Like, it's so that main, mainstream media and, and just like our brains generally try to go to like, oh, like Fairy Creek. It's like this one valley. But like old growth logging is happening everywhere that there's old growth, everywhere yeah. on Vancouver Island. You know, when we put out that mapping, people said like, oh, well, like, 43% increase in old growth logging approvals. Like, where is that occurring? And we were like, like everywhere. everywhere. Right? And then what about the find that question about the value of that? Tree? Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I think the Ministry of Forest said that was a spruce. Um, you know, spruce is, is, is a premium, you know, spruce, fir, cedar, pine. These are these are the species that drive, that drive the market and drive the industry. Mm -hmm. um, you know, nice, clear old growth. Like that was, that was like a two meter section of log with no branches in yeah. it right? Like that clear grain timber. I mean, I don't know the, the, um, the board, the current board foot price for spruce, but all lumber prices are off the charts right now. Sure, so yeah. like there's, there's, that could have a, a big single, big old growth logs. Like I've been out with timber cruisers before, um, the, the, the foresters that, you know, like walk through a block and anticipate the value, uh -huh. right? The, the people that can look around in a forest and be like, right, there's a million dollars of timber in here. And right. then the companies say like, right, it'll, it'll cost, 400 grand to get it out right? right to build a road to to bring in the machinery to bring in the fallers and extract it and then truck it out to their mills and then mill it and then sell it um that's the calculus that's made but there, there are single old growth trees that are worth like in the tens of thousands of dollars so that tree might have been worth 20 or thirty thousand dollars it might have been worth 50 you know like you know there, there's people that know that more than me but but uh yeah there, there are single trunks of of old growth clear grain like that, that 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 are worth that kind of money which is which is you know it explains a lot of of why they're pursued really right down to the bottom of the barrel yeah, torrance i want to i want to just thank you for for the insights and for the time i thought this has been an absolutely fantastic and insightful conversation and i hope it's been enjoyable for you and i think we got to get into way more depth 
than I think you usually do in like your normal CBC soundboy soundbite yeah, on Facebook. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, no, I, I appreciate the podcast format. We still like really scratched the surface on a couple of different pieces. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but 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 no, we did we did you know get 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 uh, get a chance to discuss in in the depth, frankly, that these complicated issues deserve. And I, I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. I just want to throw out an observation. A podcast we did more recently was about recycling wood. And what it comes to what I'm hearing from you is we can be looking at these high value products. But on the flip side is also we have had a tendency for the last, I'm going to say, 50 years to just use wood as freely as possible. Two by fours were so cheap. And now we are talking about deconstructing homes, uh, right. reusing wood. So you deconstructing buildings. And you know, I, I kind of see these two things going hand in hand where we're still going to need that lumber for our decks and fences and homes, but yeah. we have a lot of it out there already. And, and you know, I'm, I'm guilty of it. I'm sure we all are when you take down your deck or whatever, it all goes into the, the landfill and that clearly needs to change there around that. Are you involved in that side of the, the process at all? Uh, yes. Yeah, so on the recycling side, yeah, my neighbors are, there's a company here in Vancouver called the Han Builders. Who, yeah, Han Builders. You know, yeah, they, we know yeah. So they just a block from my house here in Kits. They took oh. down. Uh, they were taking down roofs and and they have a system set up that they've franchised uh, uh, across the country. So that yeah. that's that's great. Um, and I'm actually talking to the builders every day. I walk by and do my inspection, <laughs> uh, so I see nice. what they're doing. But but uh, so I think that we should all want to do that. Um, and, and frankly, you know, the neat thing about wood and wood products is it's the most recyclable of probably any material on the planet. Um, right. right. It's right. just that at least we know it's not going into, you know, when you think about bioplastics, even, I mean, we can make bioplastics uh, with uh, wood fiber, for example, to replace all of uh, fossil fuel based plastics. Uh -huh. So, you know, it's, so then you've got a recyclable material, right? Uh, you know, and that's where I think the exciting part is. So is is the fact that it's probably the most benign material on the planet. Mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, right. thank you. No, I hope to see more of that in the future. But go ahead, Jeremy. Yeah, I was just going to say, uh, Gary, I mean, I this sort of one of the last questions I had for you was, uh, I know that we all kind of roll our eyes when we hear people talk about sustainable forestry. And it's, it's almost like it's impossible to have that conversation without kind of almost wanting to puke, frankly. But right. I mean, I, I agree with you that like old growth logging is going to come to an end, whether it's in two years or five or 10. Hopefully yeah. it's not longer than that because it means it came to an end only because we logged it all. But at some point, this province has to look beyond old growth and shift to whatever comes next. And we know that there's a big climate component of this because at one, you know, once upon a time, climate, uh, Canadian forests were net carbon sinks. And it looks like now or in the near future, then they might become net emitters because we've degraded and changed our forests so substantially. And I know, I know you know that. But do you, are you optimistic at all about a post old growth logging or post old growth forestry industry? And what might that look like? What's the most optimistic outcome that you could share with us today? Uh, so I am optimistic. Uh, that's why I'm, <laughs> I'm in the business. That's why I teach in the university. Because uh, I think there can be a, a great future uh, in this sector. Um, probably more than other. I mean, I think the other sectors of the economy, like fisheries and agriculture and mining and so on have even 
bigger challenges ahead uh, than we do. Mm. Um, but I guess having grown up on a farm, uh, I, I mean, I see it as a very kind of complex farming, regenerative farming or regenerative agriculture is the buzz in agriculture. But, it, mm. but I truly, you know, I've watched, you know, forests come back. It does renew. Uh -huh. And I, I think for a lot of people, they just find that a really hard concept to grasp. And um, so, so, and then in terms of the products, I mean, there's a lot of smart people in this sector, uh -huh. uh, you know, very well educated. I, technology is a huge part of the solution. Uh, it's not just the biology and the genomics and so on, which I also work with those folks, but Technology is bringing about incredible, exciting changes to how we actually manage the forest and how we're much more accountable and transparent for what's going on. Uh -huh. So I think we can uh, basically get um, folks, um, I mean, I hope civil society would just all jump on board and we could all be on the same page around uh, what to do. And that's... Well it does yeah. seem like there's a big disconnect because what you're saying is like bioproducts and value added and, and, and modifying the economy. But we still have a lot of forestry companies who just see it as like, just there's a single bottom line, more volume is better. We need to cut as much out of the forest as possible. I mean, how do we, how do we like bridge the gap between these different mindsets? Like I, I think, so that, I, I think that's you know, the change that's happening. So I, I believe that the ones who, uh, don't want to change will will leave i mean we've had huge changeovers in companies in bc uh, um, and some will leave uh, i think there's a new era of investors and a new type of investors that will come in and do it differently and i know some of those pe people who are waiting for the opportunity right uh, so that uh, and i and i feel like um so i do feel that there's uh, there's this space where this, you know, where with with appropriate government policy change, uh, and, and you can basically lay down, lay it down. Go, okay, either you change with us, or you go somewhere else and do your business the way you like doing your business. So, mm -hmm. which one do you want? Because we are changing the rules, and and I think that um, that's the conversation we're having. Whether it's with first, and I think First Nations will be. Uh, incredibly influential in that discussion mm -hmm. uh and and i see a lot of entrepreneurs and and uh and, and i say technology is playing a much bigger role and and so i i think there's a lot of a new combination of things that can create this um uh yeah exciting future for the well, sector thank you gary i really appreciate those answers and it's actually really cool to hear someone who's been around as long as you have to actually come away with this and and still have like an opti optimistic uh outlook i think that's really inspiring yeah. i really appreciate your words okay well that shows i'm old <laughs> <laughs>
hopefully there's some sort of resolve that satisfies workers, satisfies indigenous communities, satisfies people who care about old growth and want to make sure there's old growth left for their kids to explore. And we're handing off a world that is not um, completely, um, you know, chopped. Yeah. And I think we did a good job of at least addressing as, mu- as well as we could in this format, the um, indigenous component and the complex land, the land title question, uh, as well as biodiversity and climate. And, um, you know, Torrance had a lot of interesting, thing, interesting things to say about workers' rights too. I think a lot of people don't realize that Wilderness Committee is, shows a lot of solidarity with, uh, with workers. When there was the strikes last year, the year before, he spent a ton of time up there working with workers on strike and um, it's trying to bridge the gap between environment and labor, which is not always easy to do. And in addition to First Nations. Yep, well, I might have to talk about this again in the summer, in the fall, see where we're at. Lots is changing every day. So um, I think that's it though. I gotta, I gotta run, Jeremy. So uh, thanks for meeting okay. up and talking about this with me. Thanks everybody and thanks for listening. <laughs>